0: Good morning again. Uh, We continue our very slow march through Matthew chapter 2 for Advent. Three verses today. Don't worry if you're afraid you're going to get shortchanged on a sermon. Three verses. Uh, We're looking at uh, Jesus coming back, going down to Egypt and coming back as a small child. Um, We're going to consider the second half of the sermon today, what it means that Jesus uh, is the Son. Uh, who's come from Egypt, and what that means for us, being God's children, and how that helps us understand what it means to call God our Father. Um, I hope, and I think that will be quite encouraging to you. I would encourage you, as we head into this, to pay attention to all the encouragement of this, uh, of what it means that God's our Father, because next week, we have three verses on Herod killing children, and I think um, we'll take some time next week to consider in depth um, evil in the world, and so take today, what we have today, the encouragement of today, as we head into the darkness of next week's consideration of evil. But today, we'll stick with 13 to 15. Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help open our eyes so that we might behold beautiful, wonderful things in your word today. Uh, Teach us what it means to call you father. Teach us the wonder and the generosity of having Jesus given to us as the son who has gone down to Egypt on our behalf. We pray in his name. Amen. Um, Okay, any kids in here who are paying attention? um, Hopefully that's all of you. Uh, What is your favorite thing about Christmas? Anybody? You don't have to say out loud. Enthusiastic bunch. Um, You can be honest, think about it. Um, I'm sure probably helping your parents clean up the Christmas tree, needles, and all that stuff. Uh, When I was a kid, for me, it was all about the presents, Lots of things to like about Christmas, lots of things to enjoy, but the presents, especially when you're a kid, have to be one of the best parts. We're going to consider today what God has given us in Jesus. Jesus is God's greatest gift, his greatest possible gift. Uh, Jesus is what all of God's promises, all of God's uh, actions, all through history, everything that God's made, all of it is about Jesus. These three verses are here to help us see what God has given us in Jesus. Uh, We're working our way through Matthew 2 for the rest of Advent, Uh, and so today I've got only two headings for you, Uh, flight and fulfillment, flight and fulfillment. First in verses 13 to 14, the flight. Um, You remember from last week, if you were here, we learned about this amazing miraculous visit by the Magi to the child Jesus. Uh, They were guided there through this supernatural event happening in the sky. Uh, These wealthy, these elite um, pagan outsider men come to worship Jesus. Uh, But now that we've seen that, that was very exciting, very encouraging. It showed us all kinds of wonderful things about who Jesus is. Uh, We now are suddenly taking a very ominous dive Once again, we have an angel appearing to Joseph in a dream. You remember that from the end of chapter 1, the angel appears to Joseph and says, you're going to have a son. Mary's going to have a son. This is what you're going to name him. Don't leave her. Don't divorce her. Uh, Except now, uh, when he has this special angelic dream, it's not with happy news like the first time, but now with alarming news. The angel tells him, get up, wake up, take the baby, take his mom, and run away. Stay there till I tell you, because this famously psychotic king, Herod, is preparing to hunt down this baby to kill him. If we know the story of the Bible, we know that Egypt is the place where Israel had been enslaved for hundreds of years. It's the place where God um, had rescued them from uh, in this event we call the Exodus. And um, There's a book of the Bible called Exodus, but we also describe that whole event as the Exodus. Egypt, if you are Israel, if you're reading the Bible and you come across the word or the idea or the place Egypt, that's not a good thing. Egypt is not the time or the place that you want to go back to. Uh, this is, for me, something like middle school. A lot of bad things happen there. A lot of embarrassing things. A lot of terrible things. You don't want to go back there. And so, a big part of what Matthew wants to show us in this tiny little story, he's the only one, in, the only place in the whole Bible that you hear this story about Jesus' life. One of the things he wants to show us, uh, but also all the way through the gospel, is that Jesus is Israel. Um, there's gonna, I'll tell you more about that in a little bit, what that means. But before we get there, um, just after we've um, had this story about the Magi <clears throat> that hint at this wonderful, sublime divinity of the Lord Jesus, just after we've been reminded of that, now we're getting this stark reminder about the frail humanity of Jesus. Last week we saw his divinity. They're offering these gifts that are appropriate to give to a God in worship. Now we're being reminded of his frail humanity. He is divine, he's worthy of all of our worship, but mystery of all mysteries, he is also human. He is subject to the weakness and the misery of life in this sad world. And so you can see here uh, at the very beginning of his life how profoundly vulnerable he is. Uh, This great Messiah, the son of David, he's come to save his people from their sins. Remember the angel said, this is who he is, this is what he's going to do. This is Emmanuel, this is God with us. And right here, he can't even save himself. He's a little baby, he's whisked away in the arms of a teenage mother. He's a fugitive. He's a refugee, fleeing tyranny and injustice. I want to make a little side point here. Uh, Sometimes you will hear well-meaning Christians and well-meaning politicians point to this little story uh, to promote a very specific stance on modern immigration policy. This story does not do that for us as much as we might wish and hope that the Bible gives us that kind of clarity about policies today. But at the same time, uh, knowing that even our Lord Jesus was a refugee, should make us deeply compassionate toward people around us in similar situations. People who are far from home, people who are fleeing from abuse, people who are vulnerable to being taken advantage of. After God rescues Israel out of Egypt, He gives them His law there on Mount Sinai. Uh, And there's a lot of places in that law about treating immigrants with kindness and fairness. And when you read those laws, God usually says, don't ever forget that you too used to be foreigners. You too used to be sojourners being treated very badly, being taken advantage of. And so today as Christians, how much more should the mistreatment of our Lord Jesus as a baby shape the way that we view and treat victims of abuse today, victims of violence around us in our world? You see there in verse 14, Back to the story. You see there in verse 14 that Joseph wakes up from this dream, and he obeys right away. Uh, he obeys so quickly that he doesn't even wait till morning. It tells us they leave at night. He goes, and he wakes up Mary, and they wake up the baby. You know, that's not something you usually do. You don't like waking up babies, but this is a bad situation. They grab whatever they can, and they run for it. Now this is an amazing thing, because just a little while ago, Joseph had been told that Jesus was going to be miraculously born of a virgin. His name was going to be Jesus, also known as Joshua, because that's a name that means that God saves. Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. Jesus was also going to be named Emmanuel, because he's God in the midst of humanity. And they saw this miraculous guidance of the Magi to their house, and now the angel comes back and says, get out of Dodge, run away. Joseph could have very easily thought, excuse me? Are you serious? Didn't you just tell me that this child is a divine Savior, and now you're telling me to take him and run away? This is some promise that you're giving me. I thought God was with us. Sometimes God works in our lives in very spectacular and glorious ways, and we all, of course, if we could have our choice, would prefer that. But a lot of times, God leads us through the wilderness. A lot of times, God takes us back to Egypt, so to speak. Even Jesus, even Jesus, from the very beginning of his life, faced great danger, great loss, and great suffering. God could have very easily, miraculously saved him from Herod, could have... uh, Caused a meteorite to fall on his house and wipe him out. Could have done anything he wanted, but God chose not to do that. God can, if He wants to. God can miraculously save you from whatever pains or sins or griefs or fears you might be facing today. But most of the time, He doesn't do that. But God is with you, just like He's with Jesus and His parents. Joseph is supposed to just ride it out in Egypt. Far from home, no connections, no job. He's got a hormonal nursing wife to take care of. And the angel just says, just wait there. Just wait until I tell you to come back. He doesn't say, here's how long you're going to be there. Here's the people I've got there ready for you to take care of you. Don't worry, it's all going to be okay. He just says, just go there and just wait and just see how long it's going to be. He has no idea. Some of you are in a similar kind of situation. Jesus has been there too. Even in Jesus' infancy, Matthew is already walking us along the very long and very dark shadow of the cross. Jesus' life was a life full of misery and suffering and weakness. So you have flight, And then you have fulfillment, verse 15. This is Matthew's, this is where he's driving at. This is his point in this story. Look at where he comments on the significance of this somewhat obscure chapter in Jesus' life. Matthew says there in verse 15, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, This is the second of four places in only two chapters where Matthew says something about Jesus is a fulfillment of what one of the Old Testament prophets wrote. Over and over and over again, Matthew keeps saying, this is to fulfill what this prophet said. This is to fulfill what this prophet said. All through the gospel narrative, all through the gospel stories, over and over again, you'll hear this idea, this language of fulfillment, that something is getting filled up, something is happening that was promised a long time ago. It's here, uh, in this story about Jesus, we're hearing that it's a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet Hosea. This is one of the little tiny prophets that, you know, it's really easy to miss when you're going through your Bible. Uh, we read the main um, section, we read the main paragraph of this a little while ago. Uh, when you go back to that passage, uh, you see there that in its own context, it's very obviously talking about the people of Israel leaving Egypt in the Exodus. Uh, there's nothing in that passage that refers to the Messiah, that mentions the Messiah, that seems like it's talking about uh, someone who's coming, a son of David, who's going to be a king one day. There's no mention of any of that. Uh, But the Old Testament is not just a record of what some prophets experienced a long time ago. The book is not just a a record of a bunch of people telling us about how they experienced God in their own times, in their own places. It is a human book, The Bible does have real human authors with real historical contexts uh, written in language and imagery that's often adapted to the, the various aspects of their times and their cultures. It is a human book. But most deeply, it's a divine book. The ultimate author of Scripture is God. God speaks everything that he wants to say through these humans with perfect truthfulness all the way through. And in this book, God is still speaking. It's not just that God said something a long time ago, it's that God still speaks through it. Even when you read the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament, it doesn't say, oh yeah, you know, one time way back when the Bible said this. It almost always says, Scripture says. Scripture is saying this. The Spirit says. And so while at a human level, imagine yourself in the position of the prophet Hosea, Uh, receiving somehow these messages from God to give to Israel. Um, At a human level, he understood these verses to be talking about Israel actually leaving Egypt in the Exodus, this great event that was now in the rearview mirror in Hosea's day. Uh, Hosea clearly, of course, understands that that's what this is talking about. What else would it be? Uh, But even deeper than that, Matthew, the gospel writer now, is inviting us to see with him, now in light of the resurrection, in light of the empty tomb, He's inviting us to see that these verses most deeply are about Jesus. Matthew is going to keep showing us over and over that Jesus is Israel. Or to put it a different way, that the story of Israel in the Old Testament was always a sign pointing us forward to the story of Jesus. So that when you go back now in the light of the resurrection and you read the Old Testament, you find there Jesus. You see there things. That at one level, the people who originally got it uh, didn't see or couldn't see because they hadn't yet met Jesus. Uh, you've already gotten some clues, even just this little story. We've already gotten some clues at this earliest stage of his life, even as a, as a little kid, uh, that were echoing some of the events and some of the figures of Israel's story. Um, if you are an astute Bible student, you know the story really well. Uh, you may have been reminded of this period in Moses' life. Remember, Moses is the guy that leads the people out of Egypt. Uh, When he was a baby, like Jesus is a baby here, uh, remember his parents had to hide him. They had to rescue him because of this tyrant, this king, who was going around killing babies. And so his parents rescue him. And so there's an echo of that in Jesus' life. Jesus has to get saved from a king who's going around killing babies. Uh, But also, too, there's even more echoes. Um, If you go further back than Moses, earlier into Israel's story, you get these guys named Abraham and Isaac, and Joseph, and Jacob, all four of them have to flee to Egypt at a time of great chaos, a time of great uncertainty. And so also now, that's happening with Jesus and his family. The Bible is full of all of these echoes and parallels and these kind of stories repeating themselves over and over and over again, picking up more nuance and more meaning as like a snowball rolling down a hill. Um, This kind of deja vu is going to keep happening all through the life and the ministry of Jesus. But the quotation from Hosea shows us that all of these echoes and these parallels, they're not just superficial, they're not just coincidence, they're not just clever, like, oh, that's kind of fun, another repeat of that kind of same kind of story, isn't that interesting? Uh, The quotation from Hosea shows us um, that we need to understand the story of Israel as really being the story of Jesus and vice versa, the story of Jesus being the story of Israel. Matthew wants us to see that in a very deep sense, Jesus is Israel. But why is the story of Israel so important? Why am I banging on so much about Israel? Why is the Old Testament so long? Why is it so complicated? Why does it have all these different genres in it? It's pretty odd, isn't it, to think that the one true God of the whole universe, the God who made everything, that he would make such a big deal about one tiny little ethnic group in a time and a place now very different from our own, the modern world finds that specificity, that particularity, that narrowness, our world finds that to be pretty offensive. We, like just about everybody except the Jews in the ancient world, think that, well, there's lots of people who have experienced God, and there's lots of ways to find God, and there's lots of angles on God. And so even in the ancient world, when the Jews went around saying, no, we worship the one true God, we're the only people that he's chosen, Uh, the Greeks and the Romans and the Babylonians and the Assyrians, they all thought that was insane. They said, what are you talking about? That's crazy. They, like people today, found it very offensive. But Israel, uh, according to the Bible, is so important because its story is really the story of the whole human family. It's the story of the whole human family in a nutshell. According to the Bible, the big story of our entire world and its entire history is this, creation, sin, and redemption. Creation, sin, and redemption, to put it really simply. Another way to think about that is through the lens of three questions. Where did we come from? What's wrong? How do you fix it? Everybody at some level is running around with a basic set of answers to those questions. Some people consciously, many people unconsciously. Where did we come from? What went wrong? How do you fix it? Adam and Eve, so looking at the entire human family, Adam and Eve, the first people, uh, God made them in total happiness. This is what the Bible says. This is how the Bible answers those questions. Adam and Eve were made in perfect happiness, perfect wholeness, uh, but they cast all that aside in rebellion against God, and so they get cast out of his presence. They get sent east of Eden. They are exiled, so to speak, from God's good and wise rule. They're exiled from God's presence. Their kids and their kids' kids, according to the first book in the Bible, get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then in the 12th chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, you suddenly hear about God calling out to one man in particular, Abraham. God, all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, uh, as far as we can tell, God just talks to Abraham and says, I want to bless you. I want to use you, I want to use your descendants to bring a great blessing to all people on the earth. And so you see there that in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is God's answer to the utter insanity and brutality of the human family being depicted all the way through Genesis chapters 4 to 11. With Abraham, God is promising that he will restore and redeem his creation from all the horrors of sin, not least our alienation from God, the worst horror of sin. Abraham's descendants eventually end up in Egypt as slaves for hundreds of years there with God apparently indifferent to it, God not talking, um, them wondering, where is God? What happened to these promises that we heard about? What are we doing down here in so much misery? But then at the beginning of the book of Exodus, you hear uh, that God sees what's going on, that God remembers his promises. Uh, that God knows what's happening to his people, and that he's going to do something about it. And so in a sense, Israel has its own story of creation and fall and redemption. God creates them, so to speak. God calls them into being by making these promises to Abraham, but then Abraham's descendants fall, so to speak. They fall into the exile of oppression and misery in Egypt. And then God raises up Moses and mightily intervenes to redeem them out of Egypt, to save them in the Exodus. God brings them to the Red Sea. He wipes out Pharaoh and his army. They go there to Mount Sinai. Everybody is really happy. They eagerly agree to live under God's good and wise law. And then things are looking really good. It looks like, wow, maybe this is all turning around. Maybe all these promises to Abraham are finally coming true. It seems like God's kingdom is finally being restored. And so God tells them there in Exodus 19, He says, You're going to be a kingdom. That's a very important word in the Bible. God says, You're going to be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so Hosea 11 now, going a little further forward in history, Hosea chapter 11 is looking back to that period of time, looking back to the Exodus as the good old days. The good old days when Israel, Hosea says, was like a little boy. Did you catch that imagery? Um, when God, in a sense, became his father. God says through Hosea, you know, it was this period of time, you know, a lot of you parents know exactly what this is like. You look back to the time when your kids were really little and sweet and cute. God says there in Hosea, you know, it was like those days when I was holding you by the hands and I was was teaching you to walk. I was doing all these, these gentle and these tender things to help you. But then Hosea says, Israel grew up. Israel grew up into a nasty teenager resentful and rebellious, refusing to obey God. And so God says a a phrase that many of you here today know exactly what he's talking about. The more I called, the more you ran away. The more I tried to help you, the more you flipped me the finger. God says, no matter how much I did for you, no matter how much I do for you, you're rolling your eyes, you're stomping your feet, you're sneaking out, you're sleeping around. And so in spite of his amazing redemption, in spite of these wonderful and clear laws that God gives to them, Israel almost immediately started rebelling against God, just like Adam and Eve had done. You see it right away, right after the Exodus, uh, as Moses is very irritably leading them around in the wilderness, so sick of dealing with it all. Uh, The point there in the story of Israel, it looked really good for a while, but the point is that even the redeemed people of Israel... Do not escape the suffering grip of sin that takes the entire human family by the throat. Israel is still stuck in the same position as the entire human family. But at the very end of Moses' life, he's jaded after decades and decades of dealing with these people's constant complaining, their constant bickering, their constant backtalking, a bunch of grouchy teenagers. At the end of his life, Moses reminds Israel about why God chose them, about why God loves them. Now listen to this. This is amazing. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses says to Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. You see what he's saying there? catch that? God says, the reason that I love you, it's not because you're really big or impressive. You're actually not. The reason that I love you is because I love you. That's it. I love you because I love you. A little while later, Moses will say to them, don't think that God is taking you into the promised land because you are a particularly good or moral or righteous people. He says, you're a stubborn people. You're a rebellious people. God didn't choose Israel. God didn't do this for Israel because there was something inherent to them that made them worthy of God's love. God says, I love you because I love you. But then Moses also too, at the very end of his life, looks forward to a day when God's going to change Israel from the inside out. When he will, in the language of Deuteronomy, circumcise their hearts. The first exodus from Egypt, from slavery, only changed their circumstances. Their circumstances were really bad. Their circumstances got a lot better. But the Exodus didn't actually change their heart. Israel is still in the same boat as Adam and Eve. Same boat as all of humanity, as all of us. And so that's what Hosea 11 is summarizing. The whole Old Testament is one long, tragic story of Israel rebelling and God patiently calling him back. And so there in Hosea 11, I don't know if you caught it, like a broken-hearted parent God says to Israel, how can I give you up? How can I cast you aside? The Old Testament goes on and on and on. It gets darker and sadder all the time with us wondering as you read it, how can things actually turn around? How can things get better? How can such a rebellious child ever return to the Father's home? And so Matthew now, here at the beginning of the New Testament, at the beginning of Jesus' life, here and elsewhere, is showing us that Jesus is the real Israel. That Jesus is the true son. What Israel failed to do, become a blessing to all nations through obeying God joyfully in gratitude for his mercy. That's what Israel was supposed to be doing. What they failed to do, Matthew wants us to see, Jesus is going to do gloriously. Because Jesus is the son. Jesus is the son. Jesus has always been the Son. That's part of what we're confessing in the Nicene Creed, that Jesus has always been the Son through all of eternity past. Matthew picks up on this in chapter 11. He quotes Jesus saying this, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus has always known the Father as the eternal Son. And so you see what that's saying All along, Israel's own sonship, Israel being God's son, so to speak, Israel's sonship had always been a picture of Jesus' truer and eternal sonship. It was always pointing us forward to what it means that the Father has always had a son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. God's true son has come. He's not only like Israel, the one being delivered from the misery of Egypt? the cross. But he's also, like Moses, the one who delivers his people from it. Suffering and oppression and abuse and slavery. The Bible is very clear that God will one day destroy all of those things. But the Bible is also clear that the greatest and deepest problems in this world for Israel and for the whole human family, that they're spiritual problems. They're not material problems. They're not circumstantial problems. Sin and death and Satan are even worse slave masters, even worse abusers, even worse oppressors than Pharaoh. But because Jesus is the Son who has now come out of the Egypt of the cross, the Egypt of the grave, when you are united to Jesus by trusting in Him, that's what the New Testament calls being in Christ, When you are united to Him, you receive what the New Testament calls the Spirit of Sonship. The Spirit of Sonship. That means that if you trust in Jesus this morning, you have been adopted. You have been adopted into God's family with all of its rights, all of its privileges, that the firstborn son was entitled to in the ancient world. That's why it always talks about us being sons. Yes, it means sons and daughters, of course. But there's a significance to it saying that we have the spirit of sonship. That means that all of us, whatever your actual sex, means that all of us have the full rights and privileges that the firstborn son would have had back in that day. We've all become firstborn sons, so to speak. And so if we're going to understand the Gospel of Matthew, if you're going to understand the New Testament as the climax of God speaking to humanity, you have to understand what it means call God Father. This is what makes Jesus such a wonderful gift. And so while the direct point of these verses is not to explain what it means to have God as your Father, they do show you, they do assume that Jesus is the Son of the Father. And that as the Son, He can redeem us like God redeemed Israel in a sense from being orphans To being adopted. We too. Can be beloved children. Of the father. And how precious. That gift should be to us today. Even if. Many of us. Have had very poor examples. Of God's love. In our own earthly fathers. For some of us. It's hard to hear about God being a father. Because our fathers have treated us very badly. But the Bible wants to show you. How wonderful it is to have God as a father. How poorly some of our earthly fathers have fallen from it. The term father is not very common in the Old Testament. It shows up sometimes, uh, but it usually refers to Israel as a group of people. Uh, like Moses goes to Pharaoh uh, in the Exodus and says, God says, let them out. They're my son. That's what God says. Uh, so sometimes it refers to Israel. Occasionally it refers to Israel's king. God says, he's my son. But in the New Testament, this term for God becomes dominant. It's the most common way to refer to God. And it becomes far more personal, far more intimate, right from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Every week, we pray the Lord's Prayer together. And what are the first two words of that prayer? It's our Father. And Jesus could have put lots of titles in for God, of how to address him, how to think of him, how to refer to him. But when his disciples want to know how to pray... He says, here's the title you should use, our Father. Uh, Jesus tells lots of parables about God being a good and a generous Father. He says, yeah, you know, you disciples, you're kind of, you know, maybe on your good days, a sort of halfway decent parent. Uh, And so even if you on your best days are only halfway decent as a parent, as a father, uh, how much more is your God going to give you good things? How much more is he going to provide for you? God is a wonderful Father. Father. Uh, Jesus is repeatedly giving his disciples these reminders that you have to be like a little child to enter the kingdom. And part of the point of that is to remind them that we relate to God as a child relates to a father. Dependence, neediness, uh, inability to contribute uh, to the income of the household. Uh, Jesus says you have to be like that if you want to know God. If you want to come into his kingdom, you have to be a little child. For those who trust in Jesus, God is not merely an absolute king, although he is that. We're good at emphasizing that in the Reformed world, that God is in control, God has power. That's all wonderful and that's all true. But that's not merely what God is. God is also a loving father. Christians are not merely lowly subjects, although we are. We are also beloved children. The rest of the New Testament, uh, if you pay attention to it, I mean, if you've been around the Bible for a while, you've been around church for a while, this stuff can kind of just blow past you because you're used to it. And you kind of take it for granted. Uh, But you read the New Testament, and it's always marveling at what it means to have God as a father. In Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul is echoing the imagery of the Exodus. He tells Christians, You are no longer a slave, but you're a son. And again, echoing the Exodus in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The apostles learned to use this word Abba from Jesus. It shows up in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's an Aramaic word. Uh, that is a somewhat familiar term of address for your father. Uh, Maybe not quite like daddy, but something at least like dad or pop. That's the word Jesus used to refer to him in his own language, Aramaic. And it was so impactful to the apostles, so meaningful to them, so out of the sky like a thunderbolt, that they even use it when they're writing in Greek to these pagan Christians. They say, use this word, Abba to refer to God. Greeks don't know Aramaic. The apostles are amazed that Jesus would use that word to refer to God. And so Paul says, we have the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Dad, Father. So you see what he's saying, what Paul is saying. When you trust in Jesus, when you are adopted into God's family, when you, so to speak, go through the exodus... You can have the same kind of confidence. You can have the same kind of familiarity with the Father as Jesus does. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to wonder if God's going to walk out on you. You don't have to wonder if God's going to provide for you. Some of you had to wonder that kind of thing growing up as a kid about your parents. Paul says, You don't have to think that about God. He's not that kind of parent. You know you're not an orphan anymore, you're adopted, you're beloved. You are the child of a good and a generous father. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that the father has qualified you to inherit his riches as a member of the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul says, how did the father do this? How did he qualify you to be a full heir, full rights to the whole inheritance, all the riches? How did he do that? Paul says he did it by forgiving your sins. And so you see what he's saying? It's not just that the son really likes you. He's nice. He can relate to us. He's human. It's not that he kind of took us and presented us to a grouchy and distant father in the sky who is not so sure if he likes you, who is not so sure if he's going to keep you around. That's not what it's saying. That's what a lot of Christians think about God. Paul says that the father qualified you. The father brought you in. The Father forgives you. The Father sent His Son to redeem you from bondage. I've told you guys before, a lot of Christians think that the reason that the Father loves me is because Jesus died for me. That's actually not correct. It's actually the opposite. The reason that Jesus died for you is because the Father loves you. Do you see how different that is? The Father qualified you. The Father forgives you. You can go on and on and on and i'll finish with the apostle john that's just the apostle paul uh, in the first chapter of john's gospel he says that those who receive jesus get the right to be god's children not the begrudging uh, granting not the uh bone that god will throw to you but he says you get the right to be god's children Not because of anything that you might do. Not because of anything that you might want, John says. But why? Because of the will of God. Because the Father wants you to be His child. The Father loves to have you in His family. And so are you weak? Yes. Are you sinful? Yes. Do you doubt? Yes. Are you a failure? Yes. All those things are true. But God loves to adopt weak and sinful and doubting and failing children. Later on in his life, the Apostle John says this in one of his letters. He's a very old man now. You know, old men can sometimes be very jaded about the world, they've seen a lot. But listen to John, he's really old. Listen to how amazed he is at what God's given him in Jesus. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so here's somebody who's been following Jesus for 60 or 70 years, and he says, I can hardly believe it. Can you believe this? We're God's children. What an amazing kind of love. That's really what we are, guys. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Exodus. Jesus is Israel That's not some bare, abstract, theological thing. Because Jesus is the Son, we can all be sons. This exodus in Jesus, this rescue from being orphans, this adoption into God's family, it's God's greatest gift. What more can He give you? Let's pray. Father, remind us of what we're really saying when we call you Father. Remind us of what rights are really ours. Remind us of your provision for us, your kindness toward us, your generosity toward us, your willingness to receive us in weakness and in hurt and in failure. Uh, How poorly we reflect your love to our own children, how poorly our parents have reflected your love to us, Even so, Lord, help us to see that you are a kind and generous Father. Thank you for saving us in the Son. We pray in his name. Amen.